Welcome and thank you for standing by. At this time, all participants are on a listen-only mode for the duration of today's conference. If you would like to ask a question, please submit questions via email to Nora Bodner. Today's call is being recorded. If you have any objections, you may disconnect at this time. I would now like to turn the call over to Congresswoman Jane Harmon, President, Director, and CEO of the Wilson Center. Thank you. You may begin. Thank you, Operator. Good afternoon to uh, many on the East Coast. Uh, Good evening to some in the Middle East, not making this up. Uh, And a special hello to uh, at least five uh, trustees of the Wilson Center, Thelma Duggan, Barry Jackson, Drew Maloney, who will moderate the conversation, uh, Earl Stafford and our former uh, trustee, Chuck Robb, and to numerous members of our Global Advisory Council, co-chaired by Dave Petraeus and John Scarlett, who are on the line, and to members of the Wilson Cabinet Council and good friends. This is a great turnout uh, for a very important conversation on the economic aspects of the COVID-19 uh, uh, catastrophe. Um, uh, just want to make a couple of, of uh, opening remarks, uh, which is that this is the third of uh, weekly conferences hosted by the uh, Wilson Center called Wilson Policy Brief. Uh, many of you heard from our own resident uh, Dr. Uh, Larry Altman last week and our Asia program the week before. Next week, we're going to talk about uh, COVID-19 and Europe, a uh, speaker uh, to be announced soon. Uh, the conversations will take place every Wednesday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time. And uh, please let us know if you have additional suggestions for topics you would like to hear about. Uh, I don't have to say that times are tough, and we wish all of you and your families safety and health. That is most important, and it's most important to our own staffs, which are on enhanced telework at least until April 27th, and we will follow guidance after that. Uh, entire countries are shut down, and the economic uh, challenges uh, are probably greater than the 2008 financial crisis. Uh, UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres said out loud what we've all been thinking, that the pandemic will result in a global recession of unknown duration. He called on governments around the world to cooperate in lessening the pandemic's devastating impacts and restoring the global uh, economy. So um, with that cheery news, uh, we have someone who can unpack some of this, and he says he's a little gloomy, but uh, who wouldn't be right at this uh, moment? We're joined today by Dr. Lawrence Lindsay. He's an expert on economics. He served three presidents. In the Reagan administration, he was senior staff economist for uh, tax policy at the Council of Economic Advisors. For Bush 41, he was special assistant for domestic economic policy. And for Bush 43, director of the National Economic Council. He also served as a governor of the Federal Reserve uh, from 1991 to 1997. Uh, Today, Dr. Lindsay is the CEO of the Lindsay Group, a consulting firm, and is one of the most trusted voices on economics. He will speak for about 15 minutes and then be joined in conversation by our very own uh, vice chair of our board, Drew Maloney, who is CEO of American Investment Co- of the American Investment Council and former assistant secretary of the Treasury. Please note that the first portion, first portion only of this conversation will be recorded. Uh, it will be followed by an off-the-record uh, question and answer session. Uh, which Nora Bod- in which Nora Bodner will 
uh, uh, ask the questions you have emailed to her. She'll identify who sent the question and then ask the questions to Dr. Lindsay. And we've just had an informal uh, discussion about when this conversation ends. It ends latest at 3.10 uh, p.m. Eastern Time. So now, please welcome, and uh, let me express my personal delight that I can welcome uh, Dr. Lawrence Lindsay. Thanks very much, Jane, and uh, uh, I really appreciate this opportunity. And uh, like you, I, I wish we could be doing this in person, but we all know we can't. Um, uh, one, one, one correction for the record, um, uh, uh, Jane, um, I'm, I'm usually a very pessimistic person. Um, I got tired of being that, or maybe it was the rest of the world that changed. But today I'm going to be, uh, I'm going to argue for the more optimistic side. Uh, but unfortunately, my optimism is based on some pessimistic fundamentals. I really don't believe that uh, either socially or economically or epidemiologically uh, we can stay shut down as an economy uh, much beyond the end of April. Uh, and let me begin with uh, something that we often forget. Um, this isn't just about money. Um, more importantly, it's about health. And high periods of shutting down are bad for health. Uh, we know, for example, and we have lots of economic studies showing it, that um, uh, domestic violence rises, alcoholism rises, drug addiction rises, and suicides rise um, during periods when people are unemployed. And on a grander scale, there was a great study by the Associated Press about two years ago that found, uh, they did a cross-sectional study of census tracts. They found that a 10% higher unemployment rate, controlling for other things, lowered life expectancy by a year and a half. Now, what does a year and a half lower life expectancy mean? Well, you know, we're, life expectancy is about 77 years. So you just cut lives, life expectancy by 2%. Or stated differently, in the long run, something close to 2% more of the population is going to die in any given year. Uh, it takes a while to get there, but that works out to about 600,000 extra deaths per year for a sustained 10% higher unemployment rate. That absolutely swamps anything we're going to see this year uh, from um, uh, the current virus. And um, so if what you're really concerned about is saving lives, you do not want to be on the side of keeping this economy shut down for six months or 12 months or 18 months, or I would argue even three months. The related point to make, is that we don't understand, we've heard the word and we all use the word supply chain a lot, but we don't have an intuitive grasp of what a supply chain is. Any particular product you buy goes through a lot of handling and a lot of steps in that process, which I'm gonna call nodes, involve agglomerations of people. Um, there was a great picture out uh, last week of a Tyson's chicken factory where the uh, they happen to be all women. 
uh, on the assembly line walked out and shut down the assembly line. Now, um, I've been to slaughterhouse <laughs> chicken packing plants, and, and I wouldn't want to work there. But what they were concerned about was the conditions um, under which they are working, given the COVID uh, virus. They had read that you get a group of people together and the stuff is going to spread. Well, if that factory shuts down, you're not going to have chicken in your local supermarket. And I don't care whether you send them an unemployment check or, or you know, keep them employed or whatever it may be. Mm-hmm. This is a problem fundamentally on the supply side of the economy and not on the demand side of the economy. There's also a demand issue, and I'll turn to that uh, in, a, in a minute, but you cannot shut down an economy. Now, in truth, we haven't shut down our economy. Italy hasn't shut down its economy, although we're told differently. Industrial production is about 40% of the industry's factories in Italy are still operating, by the way. Um, China didn't shut down fully its economy. But we're already pushing the envelope as to what you can do before you really begin to create problems. Uh, Where our most fundamental problem is, is going to be in the small business sector because those firms tend to be undercapitalized. About 56% of the uh, workforce works there. Uh, there was a special provision uh, in the bill that just passed to help cover the payroll costs of those, uh, um, of those small businesses. But, you know, if they start shutting down, you are start, going to start to see holes appear in the economy and any one uh, business entity is not just the entity, it is a supplier to many, and it is a buyer from many. And once that hole appears, it's very hard to fill. So I am of the view that it would be devastating to keep our economy shut uh, as, as much as it's shut now, much past the end of April, and certainly past the end of May. We don't have to reopen everything all at once. It isn't going to happen that way. We're going to have to go to a more common sense system. But this is cannot be, it just cannot be a uh, sustained uh, shutdown going months and months and months. I call that the dark ages option. Uh, and I'm afraid there are a lot of people who don't understand how economies actually work who are out there advocating this. Uh, the, the final point I'd like to make is how much we don't know and how much we're learning. I have always worked with models all my life. That's what economists do. And I know models. I like models. I use models. I do not revere models. Models are limited. They are useful tools. That is all they are. Okay. They should never be used for the final decisions with regard to public policy, but merely to inform those decisions. And this was a particularly, the current epidemiological models are from a guy who does models and does statistics for a living, really quite sad. And um, we're learning a lot of things, for example. Uh, The CDC has tried to establish that um, you can catch this via airborne transmission. 
they have failed to establish that you can do this through airborne transmission. Uh, the most likely way you're going to get the virus is your hand touches something that is infected, and then you put your hand to your face, i.e. your mouth, your nose, or your eyes. That's how you're going to get it. Well, if we can't establish that it's airborne, it really puts a new perspective on social distancing. Um, we don't know how long it lasts on very many surfaces. We don't know how many people had it before we suddenly realized it. Here in America, we have we had a very bad flu season last uh, December. Um, a lot of those people got tested for the flu, didn't have the flu, but we didn't know what to test them for. Well, there's now tests going on, serological tests, that suggests that as many as 25% of people in California may have had this virus before we knew this virus even existed. That puts a whole new perspective. They now have antibodies in their system. Uh, there's a study that just came out at Oxford uh, today uh, that found that the number there was 30%. So if those numbers are true, uh, then we are, um, then the case for continuing for months is quite limited. And finally, the other piece of good news that I use to support my contention that we are not going to stay closed for very long is the number of, uh, of prophylactic uh, uses and also treatments for various drugs um, uh, for the virus. Now, those drugs have not gone through stage two trials yet. They all, so many of them have gone through stage one trials. I either used for other things, uh, for example, the anti-malarials. If we can establish that they have a reasonable efficacy, nothing cures everybody. But say we discover, and I think we are close to having done so, that uh, uh, hydrochloroqu uh, hydrochloroquine, you know, uh, has a, 50 or 60% success rate. That also dramatically changes our view of the costs and benefits of being shut down. And I just watch the news every day and a company is coming out with a new drug uh, or a new announcement uh, just about daily. So I think the combination of increased testing, which is going to give us a better statistical framework for our epidemiology, uh, the growth of uh, treatments, uh, as well as um, uh, prophylactics um, and the uh, need to have an economy functioning, not just to prevent social unrest and, and, and truly empty shelves, not just because everyone bought toilet paper, but because there is no more toilet paper getting to the store. Um, and also the, the health costs of being shut down will combine to lead us to a more rapid reopening than is now the general consensus. And Jane, that's my optimistic story. Well, uh, that's great for me. Now over to Drew Maloney, who will uh, ask you brilliant questions. Oh, th thank you very much, Jane. And thank you, uh, Dr. Lindsay. We're lucky to have someone with your expertise uh, available to discuss these very important issues that are impacting the economy today. Let me just start with the big picture question, and it builds off, I think, your third point is, you know, how much do we know and how much are we learning? And it's very tough to model the current situation that we're in. 
what do you believe is sort of the current state of affairs in regards to are, are we in for a long longer term global recession or is this just going to be a short term contracted crisis that will quickly rebound in the summer um well the first uh question is uh what decision are we going to make later this month about staying closed if we and other countries uh, stay closed into May and into June in particular. Um, again, I call that the dark ages scenario. Um, we're never really going to come back as a global economy because the amount of destruction um, to the basic economic arrangements on which the world, the country is built, which the world economy is built, just won't be there. So that would be decision um, number one. So why don't we assume my optimism is correct uh, and that will get in there. Um, there, we should have a reasonably quick rebound. The, um, so my number uh, for uh, basically where I would take us is that the gains in the third and fourth quarters should wipe out the losses in the second quarter, and we should end the year about where we started the year i.e., this would be a uh, zero, zero growth year. Uh, and I think that's a reasonable assumption, assuming that, we, um, assuming that we, we do start to reopen at the end of April. Um, I would have been more optimistic than that. Unfortunately, we added a provision uh, in the bill just passed that pays people more to be unemployed than to stay at work. I know that sounds like so bizarre you almost have to, it's almost impossible to imagine that we would do something so stupid, but we did. You get more on unemployment than you did at work. And that is likely to slow the pace at which people return to work. And right now I think that's actually the biggest risk to the, um, to the re post-recession uh, recovery. Um, it's very hard to get your mind around that and to get a modeling for that because literally we've never done anything so stupid before, and to my knowledge, nor has any other country. In general, it's in the interests of governments to, to reward people for work as opposed to discouraging them from work. But that's what we ended up passing, and that's where we are. And that's why I think we'll only be back to, uh, to zero or to starting point uh, here in the United States um, uh, at the end of 2020. Well, the Thank you for that. Um, you raised the point of the of the stimulus package and um, the paying more people to stay at home and how that was not a very wise decision. And I know we'll have stimulus package number four, so maybe there'll be even a competing decision that's even worse than that. Let's hope not. But drilling down a little bit in the stimulus most recent package on the small business lending facility and the uh, – the expansion of the Economic Stabilization Fund at Treasury, do you think that the bridge money given to small business and the flexibility that Treasury and Federal Reserve have uh, regarding liquidity issues will be enough to get us to either the end of April or potentially the end of May? Yes. Um, and on the small business package, I, I, uh, 
I paid a lot of attention to that and, and uh, sort of weighed in on a few of the provisions. Uh, the biggest problem on that is it's not well known. And um, your typical small business person doesn't have time to read legislative language um, uh, and generally is more sane than to try and read legislative language and are generally unfamiliar with it. I'm running that in, running into that in the real world here with, uh, with uh, the companies that I know. Um, but, um, yes, there is enough money there uh, for any uh, significant amount of take-up. And remember, it is refunded for small businesses on, um, uh, on their payroll as long as they don't reduce payroll. So it really is well-designed as a bridge. I think that the uh, Treasury slash Fed stabilization funds, special purpose vehicles, if that's what you want to call them, um, uh, it's, it's much more amorphous, um, and it's going to depend on how they are structured. Uh, the Secretary of Treasury has a lot of leeway in how he structures each one, um, and so we're going to have to see on a case-by-case -case basis. But, uh, yes, I believe there is enough money there. Uh, in general, the bill was envisioned as a one-quarter bridge, in other words, to bridge us through the second quarter, uh, with a little bit of a stimulative kicker in this of the third quarter. Uh, so, yes, the answer to your question is I think it was adequate. But there are some less than pretty provisions in it, for sure. Got it. Got it. Got it. Great. Great. Let me let me ask one uh, final question before we turn it over. And I know that we've had uh, Governor Scott Walker join the call, and he's got a, a couple questions that he's going to have as well. So welcome, Governor. Um, let me, the, the final question I have before we open it up is you recently wrote a really interesting paper on the forbearance daisy chain that could happen. And, and I think it's a, it's a very important issue that maybe some people aren't following that closely right now. And I guess my question, could you explain a little bit of the, of the concern you have uh, regarding that and what the potential federal solution to that issue could be? <laughs> oh, yes. Um, all right. Well, so we all know about the poor unemployed person who can't pay his rent. And in general, if you watch the media or if you watch, watch political coverage, everyone thinks that they should have a, um, a period of forbearance on paying rent. That doesn't mean the rent is forgiven, but they'll be able to uh, repay their missed rents months from now when everything's fine. And the same thing happens to be true of, say, the shutdown restaurants uh, or the store at the mall that's shut down, right? How can they be expected to pay their rent when they have no incoming money? And generally, we've had governors uh, decreeing that, um, that we should have for rent forgiveness uh, for all those people. Well, that's, you know, I'm all for that. Makes sense to me. Um, problem is when you don't pay your rent, the landlord suddenly is stuck for the money. So what does the landlord do? What does he tell uh, the mortgage company that um, financed the construction of either the home or the, uh, or the mall or whatever it may be? Well, uh, there's general sympathy um, for forgiving the mortgage payment excuse me, forbearing on the mortgage payment, uh, giving them a little bit of a holiday where they will end up paying the mortgage payment later on. 
Well, the mortgage company doesn't have a tree on which money grows. And so where are they going to get the money to pay the people who are financing the mortgages via the mortgage company? Those are often insurance companies and pension funds and people who buy um, commercial uh, paper. Um, a lot of money markets may have, uh, money market funds may have some of this, depending on, on how it's financed. So what are you going to do for them? In the end, the problem is someone's got to eat the, the rent that isn't paid. Someone's got to pick up the tab. And um, right now, it looks like it's going to land on the mortgage servicing companies unless the Fed and the Treasury step in and basically provide funding to them, in which case the rent forgiveness is going to wind up on the taxpayer. And uh, when I wrote the piece, which was just last week, uh, so far we didn't have a solution. It's unclear whether we have a complete solution at this point, but the uh, powers that be are iterating toward it. The basic economic line, there is no free lunch, and forgiving more uh, rent payments to people is a nice idea, but the question is, who's going to eat, eat the bill for the forgiven rent payment? And we got to figure, that's one of the problems we have to figure out as societies. Great. No, that's, that's very helpful. Thank you. Let me, um, let me turn it over to Nora, because I know there are several questions that we've gotten from folks on the line. So, uh, Nora? Hi, good afternoon. Our first question is from Governor Scott Walker, Chairman of the Wilson Center's Board of Trustees. The federal debt is already over $23 trillion. With the actions taken by the Congress more likely to come and the actions taken by the Federal Reserve, the federal debt will likely, likely surpass $30 trillion this year. We are fast approaching a point when every dollar borrowed by the federal government will go slowly to pay interest in, on the debt. My question, besides the obvious financial problems with that level of debt, what is the impact on the economy when the U.S. debt is this high? <laughs> oh, my gosh. Um, uh, Governor Walker and I have known each other for, for some time since, uh, since before the uh, 26th campaign. And I should have anticipated that question from him. The, um, so this is going to sound like a very cynical answer, but it gets to a more serious issue. The problem is not going to be the interest on the debt or even the short-term servicing of the debt. The Treasury can borrow essentially at zero, so there aren't any interest costs, and the debt is going to be bought up by the Federal Reserve. So when the Fed, excuse me, when the Treasury, quote, repays the, the Fed, or more likely simply rolls over the bonds, they're rolling it over with the Fed, and uh, no money ever changes hands. So it's, that's not going to be the problem. The problem is going to be when, um, and uh, Governor Walker's probably not old enough to remember the 70s um, or have heard the term bond vigilante. But when people look at the situation where you have the Federal Reserve printing the money, and I know, please forgive me, don't report me to the Fed for having phrased it that way, because they don't technically do that, but essentially they, they do print the money to finance the government's debt. Um, they say, how can this be sustainable? 
you know, isn't this what Argentina did six or seven times? Isn't that what Zimbabwe did? Isn't that what the Weimar Republic did? Isn't that lot, a lot, a lot of lots of this is sort of a normal kind of end of cycle behavior for governments and their monetary institutions? And the correct answer is yes, it is. Now, no, no country in history, uh, and no central bank in history, has had enough residual confidence out there, as much residual confidence as the Fed does or as the United States does. So it may not put us into the situation where the bond vigilantes come out and begin to sell off bonds. I think the most likely scenario is that we do get a rise in inflation, uh, and that is going to be exacerbated, by the way, by this unemployment insurance provision, because you're going to have to pay people a lot more to get them back to work. we're going to have higher inflation. We're going to see the longer dated bonds begin to command a higher and higher interest rate. And I think um, we're more likely to end up with something that looks like the 1970s. Uh, I'd call that the intermediate case. The bad case is that we do end up like Argentina or Zimbabwe or Weimar, and basically that will force us to resort to stopping fiat money, i.e., the creation of money um, by a government agency and go back to something that looks more like the gold standard. Uh, that I would call the downside case. So uh, I think you're asking a serious and very fundamental question, and the question really comes down to confidence in our entire um, fiscal and monetary structure and how they operate together. 